Hey, good morning and welcome, whether you're here in the room or you're joining us online. We are super glad that you're a part of our service today. Now, I want to start off with a question. Last week, I skipped the question. Today, I'm going to ask you the question. What are the sweetest words you've ever heard in your entire life? What are the sweetest words that anyone has ever spoken to you or, excuse me, about you, okay? It might have been the time that your boyfriend got down on one knee and he said, will you marry me? That might have been the sweetest thing anybody's ever said to you. Listen, we've got a, a couple that attends our church and he is popping the question to her tomorrow, you guys. Now look, just to set some expectations here, these people are not in the room. So ladies, if you got butterflies in your stomach in that moment and you're like, oh my gosh, is it me? It's not you. Look, I can't say that he's, I can't say that he's not gonna propose to you tomorrow. I can only say I have no prior knowledge that he's gonna propose to you. So fellas, you might wanna make some plans for tomorrow, I don't know. Maybe it was when your boyfriend said, Will you marry me? I was talking to this guy actually, and uh, I was like, how you feeling? He said, oh, I'm so nervous. And I said, why? Why are you so nervous? You guys have been dating for years and years and years. You know that she's gonna say yes. And he said, I, I know, I understand that. I just can't wait to hear that word come out of her mouth though. Then I'll feel better. So for him, the yes is the sweetest word. Maybe the sweetest word you've ever heard is the first time that your daughter looked at you and said, mama, Mama, and your heart melted. Or maybe the sweetest word was when your son finally came to you and he said, Dad, I think it's time I moved out of the house. And like <laughs> tears welled up in your eyes and you said, my boy, I've been waiting years for this day. Maybe that was the, the sweetest word that you've ever heard. Perhaps for you, it was when the judge said, not guilty, bang the gavel. That's not meant to be a joke, you guys. We have folks from all different backgrounds that call Connect Church home. And I'm just going to be honest with you. For some of you, that is the sweetest thing you've ever heard in your entire life. Listen, this morning, I want to share with you what I believe are the sweetest words that have ever been spoken. The sweetest thing that I've ever been heard said about me or you and everybody else. Now, here's the irony about these sweet words. They come out of the most bitter circumstance imaginable. They come on the hardest day in all of history. And in fact, it's because the circumstance and situation was so bitter that these words seem so very sweet. And so uh, what I want you to understand today is that when I call these the sweetest words that have ever been spoken, I don't mean that in some generic sense. I mean specifically these words have the power to transform your specific destiny. You, as an individual here in the room or watching us online, these words have the power to change everything for you. These are some sweet, sweet words, okay? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read one sentence that Jesus said this morning. Just one sentence that he said. It's found in Luke chapter number 23. We're actually going to read two verses, but it's only one sentence. Luke 23, verses 33 and 34. Look at what the scripture says. When they came to the place called Golgotha, that is the place known as the skull, they nailed Jesus to the cross. And the two criminals were also crucified, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. 
This one sentence really does constitute the sweetest words that have ever been spoken. I mean, Jesus said a lot of things, you know, during life, of course. And he said a lot of things while he was hanging on the cross. Did you know Jesus was hanging on the cross for like six hours on Good Friday? He was there a long time. And he said many things, but this sentence is the one that's been dogging me. As I've been thinking about this series, you know, overcoming offense and learning to forgive and dealing with hurt and wounds when people do us wrong, this is the sentence that I just keep coming back to week after week after week. And I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, Dan, this is where it's got to end. This is where it's got to point. We've got to bring people to the, to the moment that they understand just how wonderful and how sweet these words from Jesus really are. Father, forgive them. They do not understand what they're doing. So, you know, you might read those and you're like, okay, cool. I mean, that's, you know, that's nice that Jesus was able to forgive those people. That's good, right? And I, yeah, I suppose I should forgive too. But I want to help you to understand why these are so sweet today. I want to walk kind of word by word through this prayer of Christ and help you to see why this is so amazing and so powerful. So let's start with that word, Father. Okay, can we put that on the screen? Father. Jesus begins by addressing God as his Father. Now, that might not seem like a very huge deal to you, right? Because because Jesus called God Father throughout his time here on earth. And this morning, you've already heard us pray in the, the name or pray to our heavenly Father, right? There are a lot of people in the room, and you would say, yeah, Dan, God is my Father. You know, Jesus, that's his Father. God is my Father, too. But can I tell you something? When Jesus calls God Father, he means something a little bit different than when you and I call God Father, okay? There is a special and unique relationship that is present between God and Jesus that we get to be the beneficiaries of, but it's not exactly the same. Like, you might be a son of God, but Jesus was the son of God, okay? His relationship with the Father is a bit unique even compared to ours. Your dad is named Jeff, and he lives in Edmonton, okay? But Jesus' dad was named Yahweh, and he lives in the eternal throne room of heaven. It is not the same thing, you guys. Jesus has this special relationship with God that our brains can only scratch the surface of. We can only kind of maybe begin to sort of understand what he means when he calls God Father in this prayer. Let me tell you this. It's really because Jesus has the right to call God Father that we have the privilege to call him Father. It is Jesus' unique and special relationship with God that allows us to have a relationship with God at all. This one little word, you would read it and you would pass right over it, not even give it much of a thought, but I'm telling you, it is incredibly powerful because it demonstrates the unity, the intimacy, the closeness that Jesus had with the Father and everything else that he's gonna say in this prayer. Every other word that's going to come out of his mouth while he hangs on the cross, all of it hinges on the fact that he is the son of God. Now, I think people get confused sometimes, especially in modern times. They get confused as to why Jesus is called the Son of God. We hear that phrase and because we think like modern terms, we think scientifically. In our brain, if somebody is the son of somebody else, that means they are the biological offspring of them. They're the child of them. That's the only way that our brains can work. And yes, there is a sense in which Jesus, you know, is God's son in some sort of like way, but... What I'm afraid of is when we think about this from our 21st century perspective and not the first century perspective that they were actually using it in, it can lead us to believe that Jesus was some kind of lesser being here, 
okay? Because he was created or produced by God. He's the son. There was a time he wasn't, and then God made him, and he was born, and then he existed. That is not at all what the scripture teaches about Jesus. It's not like there was ever a time when Jesus did not exist, and then God impregnated Mary, and then suddenly Jesus was here. Jesus has always existed. And so when the scripture calls him the son of God, it's important that you understand that in the first century, when people read that, they did not interpret that as a biological phrase. Instead, they interpreted it as a legal phrase. And this matters, okay? Uh, Think back to history class. For some of you guys, that was like a few weeks ago because you're grade 10. And for some of you guys, that was a long time ago. So think hard, okay? How many of you guys remember that ancient rule called the law of primogeniture? You remember that? I just sound smart saying that. I feel good. Like, boy, our pastor is red. Wikipedia, man, it's good. Okay, the law of primogeniture. And what it said was in ancient cultures, the firstborn son was the most important. And in some cultures, he was the only one that was important, but we'll leave that for another day. If you were the firstborn son in ancient culture, you carried the full authority of your father. Because when your father died, you were going to inherit either the entirety of the estate or you were going to inherit the vast majority of the estate, okay? So when we called somebody in the Roman world the son of so-and-so, we weren't just saying that like, oh, they were biologically produced by him. What we're saying is that kid carries the full authority of his father, and he is heir to everything that the father owns, So when the scriptures call Jesus the son of God, it is in this legal sense that they mean it. Come on, you guys. Jesus carries the full authority of his father in heaven. Every word that he speaks carries the power and the weight and the truth of his father. Jesus is the uh, one who is going to inherit the father's estate. The father's estate is like all of creation. It's really big, you guys, okay? Jesus is the one who is uh, going to take his rightful place at the head of the family. But here's where the story gets so good, you guys. God takes this ancient law of primogeniture, again, which says when the father dies, the son gets to inherit everything the father has. And he flips it on its head. So it's not when the father dies that the son receives his inheritance, but it's when the son dies and raises to life, he gets the inheritance in that moment. Oh my goodness, you guys. I'm preaching deep today. I'm telling you, this is good. This is so good. And if you were to think through the implications of this, it would blow your mind. Again, we're just on the first word, Father. Listen to what uh, the, the book of Romans, chapter number one, verse four says. It says, Jesus was shown to be the son of God. When he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is Jesus Christ and he is our Lord. Wow, Father, just one word, Father. And that one word becomes the springboard to everything else that he says and does. He goes on to say, Father, forgive them. And we're actually gonna, we're gonna jump over the word forgive for just a moment and talk about them. And then we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about forgive. Who is the them that Jesus is talking about here? Who is the them? Now look, the, the truth is, I don't have time today to name the number of people that needed Jesus' forgiveness for the way that they treated him, okay? Like some of you guys want to go to lunch eventually, so I can't just drag this out forever. So here's what I'm going to do. 
I'm just going to list some of the people who needed to be forgiven by Jesus because of how they did him wrong in the 18 hours before he was nailed to the cross. Okay, just in the last 18 hours of his life, who are the them that need to be forgiven? Hey, look, the them includes the 12 apostles or the 11 apostles at this point. When Jesus brought him into the garden of Gethsemane, he said, guys, the next day is going to be really hard. Would you pray with me? And instead they fell asleep. The them, Father forgive them. It includes Judas, the betrayer, who kissed him on the cheek and acted like he loved him and instead turned him over to the Roman authorities and eventually led to his death. Father forgive them. It includes Pontius Pilate and the Roman council, or the Jewish council rather, the authorities who sentenced Jesus to die even though he had not committed any crimes at all. Father, forgive them. It included Peter, one of his closest friends who denied Jesus and ran away from him in his hour of need. Father, forgive them. It includes the crowd who shouted, crucify him, even though he had healed their diseases and he had ate in their homes and embraced them as brothers and sisters. This is the same crowd that like a week before was like, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the king. And then a week later, they're like, crucify him. We don't want this guy anymore. Father, forgive them them. That them, it includes the soldiers. The soldiers who, you know, they, they took Jesus before he was crucified and they put a crown of thorns on his head and they put a fake robe on his shoulders and they beat him and slapped him and mocked him. And then they drove iron spikes through his wrists and through his feet and they hung him up on a cross. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. The scripture tells us that these guys, the, the soldiers, that at the foot of the cross, Jesus is hanging there, executed like a criminal. And at the foot of the cross, they start gambling for his clothes. Oh, did you guys know Jesus was naked on the cross? They start gambling for his clothes, not because his clothes were valuable. Jesus was poor, you guys. They start gambling for his clothes because it is just to them. It is just another day of torturing criminals in the, in the Roman Empire. It's boring to them. So they thought, well, let's make it interesting. Let's play a game and see who can win his ragged clothes. Listen, I'm just going to tell you, I feel the Holy Spirit even right now saying, these soldiers are standing next to the most momentous moment in human history and they're distracted with stupid games. And there are people that come to church, maybe even here this morning, and you are standing right next to the most important thing you'll ever hear in your entire life. And you're playing Candy Crush, or you're zoning out, or you're thinking about what's coming up this weekend. Please, please, please don't miss this. The them includes everybody who did Jesus wrong in that moment. Father, forgive them. But can I tell you that them also includes me and you. If you read 1 John chapter number 2, verse 2, okay? So 1 John was written by John the Apostle. So one of the 11 guys that was here at Jesus' crucifixion. And I want you to read what he writes in this letter. He says, Jesus is the atoning or the payment. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And in this moment, John is saying, look, all of us that did Jesus wrong on Good Friday, all of us that tortured him or abandoned him or mocked him, all of us, Jesus paid for our sins. He said, Father, forgive us. But John goes on and he says, not only 
for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. That doesn't just mean everybody else that was there on the day of the crucifixion. It means everybody else who had lived and everybody else who will live, including me and you. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, them all, okay? We grew up in Texas, and in Texas we have this phrase, y'all, okay? You all. There's really no you know, like relational word here, them all, the all, I don't know. There's no, but that's what Jesus is saying here. Forgive them all, God. Forgive every single one of them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive Daniel. He doesn't know what he's doing. Father, forgive Tamika. She don't know what she's doing. Father, forgive Trump. Father, forgive Trudeau. Father, forgive the liars. Father, forgive the thieves. Father, forgive the religious hypocrites. Father, forgive the atheists. They don't know what they're doing. That little word, them, seems so small, so inconsequential. Charles Spurgeon's like this famous preacher from a long time ago. And he said that tiny word, them, actually might be the biggest word in the world because there's enough room inside of it for every one of us to crawl in and be covered by the merciful prayer of Jesus when he hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them because they have no idea what it is that they're doing. And let's not overlook the fact that Jesus says, Father, forgive them, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Jesus could have prayed, Father, Punish them for what they're doing. You can't let them treat your boy like that. No way. He could have said, Father, avenge me for what they've done. He could have done that. But instead, hanging on the cross, betrayed by strangers and best friends alike, instead of drinking the poison of bitterness or revenge or anger, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, hung on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them all. They don't even understand what they're doing right now. I'm telling you guys, these are the sweetest words that have ever been spoken. That God would release us from the penalty of our sin. That we could treat his son in this way, treat him this way. And rather than responding with anger and violence and judgment and condemnation, he says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Sweetest words ever spoken. And can I tell you, these are the sweetest words that have ever been spoken. And they are some of the most surprising words that have ever been spoken. Like not just in the sense that like, wow, it's surprising that Jesus could be treated that way and still look out with true compassion and say, Father, forgive them. Like if I were treated the way Jesus was, I might say, Father, forgive them, but it's all a show in my heart. I'm like, get them. But Jesus meant it. He was sincere. Father, forgive them. Listen, these are super surprising words, but not for the reason you expect. Did you know this is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus prays that God would forgive someone? Woo! I'm about to blow your mind this morning. This is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus prays that God would forgive someone. If you've read the scriptures before, you know that like throughout his three years of ministry, Jesus just walked around and he was like, your sins are forgiven. 
Hey, your sins are forgiven. You in the back, your sins are forgiven. In fact, it was one of the things that ticked off the religious leaders of his day so much is they're like, who has authority to forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus is like, exactly. Think about that for a moment. But he used to just walk around and he would directly look people in the eye and he would say, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. In Mark chapter number two, he says, the son has been given authority on earth to forgive people of their sins. So why... In the moment he's hanging on the cross, doesn't he just look out at the soldiers and the crowd? Why doesn't he just look out into the future and see Daniel and say, you are forgiven? Why does he pray God forgive them of their sins? This is the question that matters. This is the one that changes absolutely everything. To understand why Jesus asked God to forgive instead of forgiving himself, I have to explain to you what was really happening during the crucifixion. You have to understand what was really going on. It was a tragedy. It was painful. It was an injustice. Yes, all of that is true. But spiritually speaking, there was something going on underneath the physical that we might read about. So to help you understand what was actually happening during the crucifixion, I'm going to put three accounts three boxes here on the screen. And I've got on the screen the accounts of a perfect person, the accounts of a good person, and the accounts of a bad person. Now look, I'll leave it to you to figure out who's who, okay? In this, no, I'm just kidding. All right, obviously it goes perfect, good, and then not so good, okay? Now look, Jesus is the only perfect person that ever lived. If we were to look at his account, his account would be nothing but righteousness. So we'll put an R there for righteousness. That's a big fancy church word. Righteousness just means doing the right thing. That's all it means, okay? Having a right relationship with God. And Jesus was nothing but righteous. There was no sin in him whatsoever. The traps that you fall into, the habits that we give into, the, uh, the, the, the things that we do again and again, the sins that we commit, all of that, Jesus was not guilty of any of it. He was only righteous. That's why we call him the perfect one, okay? Then next we have, let's jump all the way over to the bad person. We've got me or people like me. And in this account, we've got a little bit of righteousness, but a lot of sin. You with me? A lot of sin. Listen, you say you're a pastor. You can't have that much sin. You didn't know me before, okay? Growing up, I was just like, I want to do hood rat stuff with my friends. That's all I cared about. I was getting in every bit of trouble I can. I promise you, I've done some stuff. There is a lot of sin and a little bit of righteousness. And of course, I want to say now, like, oh, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Just focus on the R's. I mean, yeah, they're little and there's not that many of them. But focus on the good stuff. Please ignore the S's in my account. Please, please ignore the S's in my account. So that's the account of somebody who might be a, a bad person or a not so good person. Then we get somebody who's kind of in the middle. They're good. They have a lot of R's. And a few S's. There's some sin in there. Not that much though, okay? Mostly good, a little bit of bad. So you might be thinking, okay, Jesus, real good. Amber, pretty good. Dan, whew, let's hope God's merciful, okay? We might think that's how it works. But can I tell you, when God looks at our, when we look at accounts, this is what we see. We see a little bit of good, a little bit of bad. Sometimes there's more of one or the other, but who can be totally sure? When God looks at our account, he sees something different. Because the scripture tells us in the book of Isaiah that in God's sight, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags, okay? Or maybe we could put it like this. If there is any sin in the account, only the sin counts. 
If there's any sin at all, then only sin counts. The righteousness gets overwhelmed by the sin. No matter the magnitude, no matter the balance, if there's even one S in the account, then we are in trouble. So when God looks at our account, what he sees is Jesus who's righteous because there is no S in his account whatsoever. But for Amber and for me and for you and for the people in this story, there were R's and there were S's. But remember, if there's even one S, it's only the S that will be seen. So now we've got a problem. We have a perfect son of God, but we have sinful people. I'm sinful. You're sinful. The Pope is sinful. Your sweet grandma is sinful. Okay. Everybody is sinful. If there's even one S in the account, it's only the S's that account. But look at this. This is what's happening on the cross. This is why we celebrate uh, this holiday. That holiday is why we call it Good Friday. Okay. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, verse 21, the scripture says, God made him who had no sin. Let's go back, please. Sorry. Uh, I put this on the wrong slide. Okay. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Okay. So let's go ahead. Now, here's what happens. God takes him who had no sin and he takes us who have sin and he swaps the account. This is what happens on the cross. He swaps the account. So all of my sin was placed on the cross and all of Jesus' righteousness is now placed in my account. There is no more S. There is only R. There is only forgiveness. There is only restoration. There is only righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, man. And then, of course, I'm going to make this slide for the next service, so they're going to get to see this one. You won't. I forgot, but that's okay. What ends up happening is that in Colossians chapter number 2, verse 15, the scripture says that Jesus didn't stay sin. That when he rose from the dead, he conquered sin and death. He made a spectacle of them publicly by overcoming them in the resurrection. So what ends up happening is that after the cross and the resurrection, we get R in Daniel's account, we get R in Amber's account, and we get Jesus, the righteous Savior, who was able to take us from lost and dead to make us alive, to make us found, to restore us to our heavenly Father. And it's all because Jesus hung on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they are doing. Father, forgive you. Father, forgive me for what we've done. Now you see this and you say, okay, that sounds good. I like that. I mean, that's pretty good. But is it like it's done? It's over? It's taken care of? I've got the R instead of the S and nothing left to do but go have some lunch and smile? Well, yes and no. Okay, because one of the final things that Jesus said on the cross, actually the last thing that he ever said, you guys know what it is? Three words. It is finished. So the account swap was done. See what I'm saying? It's done. But what you have to do is to say yes. You have to embrace the gift that God has given you in Jesus. See, we can sit up here week after week and talk about like, oh, how the Bible gives you practical tips to forgive everybody. And that's well and good. But can I tell you, you cannot extend true forgiveness until you've experienced true forgiveness. You cannot extend true forgiveness until you have experienced true forgiveness. No matter how far you go, no matter how hard you try, eventually you are going to run out of forgiveness unless you have received unlimited forgiveness from your heavenly father. 
And the way that you receive that, the way that your account gets swapped and the sin gets wiped out and the righteousness gets placed in your name, the way it happens is found in Romans chapter number three, verses 22 through 25. Listen to this passage. The scripture says, we are made right with God. We get righteousness. Our account gets the R, okay? By placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true of everyone who believes, no matter who you are. I'm gonna read that again, because I need it to sink in. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for every one of y'all, them all. We are made right, and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. We've all got the S in our account, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he forgave us and freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they don't have any S in their account. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his own blood for their forgiveness. Listen, I wanna help you live your best life. I want you to understand the scriptures teach you the way to live with peace and harmony, to get along with people, to not be wrecked when life circumstances hit you. I want you to know and I want you to practice all of that, but it begins here. It cannot begin there. You can't get the cart before the horse. Hello, you cannot extend true forgiveness until you have received true forgiveness. You will never have true peace in life until you have received true peace in life. It starts here. And until you experience this, you're always gonna struggle. But once you experience it, everything changes. And all it takes is that you put your faith in Jesus. You trust him. So I'm gonna ask you seriously, have you experienced this? Not have you ever mumbled a prayer after some service? Not did you go to church when you were a kid? Not do you tune in faithfully to the live stream. I'm asking you, have you ever experienced the forgiveness of God, the removal of your sin and the offering of Jesus' righteousness, his right standing with God on your behalf? If you have never experienced that, then I wanna give you the opportunity today. You don't have to put any money in the offering plate. You don't have to clean up your life first. It is literally crying out to God and saying, I believe. I'm ready. So I'm going to ask everyone, bow your head, close your eyes. And, and if that's you, if you say, hey, Dan, I, I am ready. I need this exchange. I need God's forgiveness and grace in my life. Then I'm just going to invite you to repeat these words after me. You can say them out louder in your heart. Jesus, I need your forgiveness. I need a fresh start. Thank you for including me when you said, Father, forgive them. And thank you for wiping away my sin, giving me a fresh start with God. Today, I accept it joyfully and gladly. And I celebrate you as my Savior and my Lord. In your name, I pray, God. Amen.